0: Greetings and welcome to another edition of The Way of Fanoa. You know, I am always so excited because I talk to dope people who do dope work, right? Like, um, and today I am joined by two of my most favorite people in electoral spaces, really in the world. Um, I'm joined by um, Ari TW, as some of the folks in some of the circles call them. ari trio Wessler and the amazing and always coming with the great snappy lines and slayer of trash white dude bro podcasters tracy quarter um ari and tracy thank you so much for like coming to spend time with me and like co-lead this podcasting space today uh i really appreciate having you both here um we are recording on Independence Day, allegedly, July 4th. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot, you know, just over the past month and a half or so anyway, about the idea of liberation, right, and freedom, um, self-determination, and what all these things. What does it mean for us now in this moment? Um, we, I mean, folks, the the protests may not be Uprisings may not be constantly on people's tongues in the same way as they were a few weeks ago, but it still is very much an everyday grind. Um, People are organizing in so many different beautiful and brilliant ways across the board, uh, pushing legislation, um, you know, uh, represented by Yana Presley and other folks in Congress um, are putting out, you know, proposals and policies and plans that are the types of things that we should be advocating for and expecting from the people we send into elected office, right? So um, we're going to just, you know, talk through some things. And apparently, like, there's this sensation called Hamilton. At least that's what the people tell me. The kids tell me it's a sensation. I am one of those contrarians that's been like, eh, I'm not watching that BS, but I don't know that my co-hosts for today will agree with my take on things. My daughter definitely does not. And she's way more radical than I am. <laughs> um, but I I was also like thinking about just where or how do I conceptualize of freedom and liberation? And what does that process of liberation look like? Right. Um, and then what do you do once you're liberated? And Something, you know, Ari and I were having a conversation, and I think actually another friend had posted, um, you know, what's like the most radical TV show? And what made me think of this was Ari posted that Stevie Universe was like one of the most radical TV shows. So in honor of our mutual affinity for Stevie Universe, Nayla helped me remix the intro. I hope y'all like it. Here it goes. We are the Progressive Gems. And we're here to pave the way. And if you think we can't, we'll show you anyway. That's why the people of this world be needing freedom, liberation, and self-determination. Yes, I am that lame. I am that nerdy. But y'all love me anywhere and so do my guests. So Ari and Tracy, I'm bringing you into the conversation now. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today?
1: That was quite the experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's probably something I should record myself doing and put it up on video. But like, I, I just like Steven Universe is. I don't know. It's so much, but like, really, this the last full season that that was on, and the whole process of like liberating the Jim Homeworld and putting the family back together which was an imperialist family of sorts, but like really like breaking the bonds uh, or the chains, so to speak. And then what did it look like after they did that was like a really interesting process to to to, to talk through, right? And we're in this moment right now where we don't just have people preaching rhetoric that things need to change. We have folks offer very real solutions. And it's not just like in terms of defund the police. We're not just saying like, okay, defund the police and that's it. Contrary to the campaign videos coming from the Trump campaign, um, it's defund the police and invest the money in these very specific ways. And these are the very specific alternatives that we need to see. So, I mean, what do you all think about like how things are going right now? And then just like, I know Tracy, I was saying to you before, like Trump is scaring me. It's not surprising that any of this is happening, but I am like legit scared at the way things are going right now and the reluctance of some so-called leaders to really like take a hard line stance, um, in opposition to him.
1: Mm. Well, one, I'm really glad to be talking to both of y'all. I'm really happy that, um, in adulthood, um, we nerds have been able to link up the way that we have. Um, I like, I remember when I took my new job, I was like, I'm about to go work with a bunch of nerds. And people thought I meant that as like a like a pejorative. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm very excited about working with a bunch of nerds. So <laughs> the steamy universe open um, and talking to y'all like makes me really happy. Um, and I think Gullah Gullah Island was one of the most uh, revolutionary shows on TV, just to put that out there. Um, you took it back with Gullah Gullah Island I know can you imagine Nickelodeon like have like black folks it's a lot anyway that's a whole nother show I just you know (laughs) go back and revisit if you can Um, but I was saying to you that I am I mean I definitely am fearful of some of the ways that Trump is is, is, um, but I'm not surprised by it because I know whiteness and I know how it works I know how it um functions in our society um and so i i feel like i've been calling this for a long time I'm like y'all he gonna mess with the election y'all he's gonna try to undermine the integrity y'all he's gonna do this thing and people and every time i remember the first time like people really looked at me like oh my god you're some kind of tribe traveler is when i said um that he was going to use the first step act as like a way to like go at democrats and I'm like, y'all, that's, that's not time travel. That's historical. Like, that's understanding history, understanding how whiteness, like, uh, evolves to, make, to like, trick us into making it believe it's, making us believe it's on our side. Um, so I am, you know, scared for what Trump um, is going to do, but I think that we can look back um, to, to our ancestors or we can look forward to, like, some, like, real Black radical unity, in the words of Dr. Angela uh, Davis, um, and try to figure out how to deal with Trump.
0: Mhm mhm-, mhm, Ari, your thoughts on where we are right now, uh and just the reluctance I mean, like I look at Joe Biden as the presumptive democratic nominee, you know, arguably the voting for not arguably electing Joe Biden gets rid of trump, right, but I'm so concerned not that whether not even about whether folks can do the work and make sure Biden wins or rather that Trump loses. But like the fact that in in the face of like what is happening right now, it's still so much upholding the status quo, which we have been very clearly able to establish right now, the status quo is white supremacy in this country. And it's just like, you know, if we get rid of Trump, there's still the line of Democrats. They're still acting like if we get rid of Trump, if we just, be nice and talk with a good voice and be respectful, then things will be all right. But that's literally never been the case. And it, that's not how self termination does not happen with permission.
2: Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, so I think there's two things that I'm really noticing my partner and I were talking about this yesterday is the Trump campaign has gone completely full mask off, Right on on it's white supremacy right like there was that whole agreement that happened around like the nixonian age about like we're going to go lean super hard on dog whistles right and we're going to talk about like we're going to go to like more subtle forms of racism right we're going to step away from like that clan visualization and ideology right that's like super up front in your face to do things that are more subtle right and like that's really the birth of neoconservatism and like the things that we've been fighting at least that was the way when i showed up in the fight that was the stuff that i was used to fighting Right. Um, and then all of the permutations of that down to like, you know, nimby neoliberalism, right. Um, that, that shows up in space and it's, it feels important to name that also that increasingly, like, as we're having, we're like also going to have a conversation about Hamilton at a certain point does not only manifest in like white people perpetuating that, right. Like, it's like, as I sit here in Oakland um, with an equity caucus, that absolutely represents like is anti self-determination and liberation. Um like that sort of fight is more of the one that we've been fighting for a really long while. And the thing that's interesting about it is it's harder. It's a harder fight because the fight is subtler in so many ways. Um, but the, the acts are just as violent, right? But they're just not the level of, they're not the type of overt violence, right? That makes for really good television, right? It's a bunch of things that like die in city council meetings and basements um, and, and then like, you know, destroying people's lives. And so it's really interesting watching Trump do this like mask off sort of thing because it's, there are a lot of the presumption that I'm seeing from like the, the privileged aspects of the Democratic Party, Um, regardless of where their identities intersect is really much under the basis and the auspices of like, if we beat Donald Trump, then we can all take release a deep breath we've been holding for four years and we can go back to brunch and we can start figuring out how to govern and start trying to reverse some of the things that came into place. When you look at, um, and I was talking to my comrades in Canada about this a while back, they had their Donald Trump, this dude named Harper, in place for 10 years. He won re-election um, as prime minister. And when he was out of office, they elected Justin Trudeau, a neoliberal Superman, right, came came up to the charge. And they were really, really, like a bunch of people and a lot of the momentum around that was really around like, oh, oh deep exhale, we can go back to brunch, we can go back to governing. Um, And two things that are really interesting about that. One is, is that the white supremacy that had been given its supercharge and its permission to mask itself off and parade around in broad daylight unapologetically, right, um, did not go away. Um, And what also didn't happen was it also wasn't a turnkey overnight of like folks switching back. Right. to like, okay we're just going to roll back all of these changes because it is also true that a lot of the a lot of the systemic horrors that have been implemented by the Trump administration have also benefited a lot of like the most elite classes in, in the country, regardless of how they identify in terms of political affiliation monetarily. Right. And those are the systems that are built on our exploitation. So it's really interesting to look at it all because I think there's a lot of presumptions that folks have about the terrain they're walking into. And it's just simply not true. Like we're not going to be able to go back. And also there is a large army of white supremacists who feel completely unapologetic and completely unafraid and completely undeterred who have really been building in large part, they've been building intergenerationally, but this version of it has been really building up since Obama's inauguration and its power. And so it'll be really... I, I'm really struck by the denial of what's coming um, from folks who are kind of walking into these next steps and also am very struck by the fact that for for folks like us, like that denial is not available, right? Like it's very, very obvious if you watch what happened at Mount Rushmore um, yesterday, like it's very, very clear that this isn't going away overnight, win, lose or draw. Um, and so we have to prepare for this to be like a long drawn out fight where like our people are at the front lines of it because that denial is not going to break until something like even
1: more catastrophic happens, um, after the election. Um, yeah. I just wanted to get in there. Everything that you're saying, I'm like, I'm like over here taking notes. Like, I'm like, yes, this is right. Everything that you're saying is on point. Um, and I think what what you sparked for me was this idea that people actually just want to be comfortable enough to ignore this. And so, you know, when you hear police violence, there's like these like kind of ebbs and flows, like black people and people who do, who do this work have been talking about, the, uh, talking about what's going on and saying the names of people who have been killed by police violence um, for for generations, right? But the mainstream is able to ebb and flow it. And if it's not on video, they don't feel like they have to talk about it as much. And so when you see what happened with George Floyd, it's that people literally like we have been telling people this has been happening for generations, but they couldn't ignore it when they saw it on video. And so that's why I think you're seeing this kind of like corporate uprising, if you will, of being like, we're going to uh, put, I don't know, capitalize to being Black or whatever it is that, they, that they're doing that isn't actually what's being called for in the moment. Because people actually just want to be comfortable enough to ignore it. So... You know, to the to the point about brunch, like people want to be able to say, okay, yeah, there are people who are being systemically oppressed, but it's not in my face, so therefore I can go enjoy like an eggs Benedict and some and a bottomless mimosa, which I also enjoy. Um, and then I think the other thing is uh, that's really speaking to me is about like where does this where does this go? And I think about the fact that my mom was born in like pre civil rights Arkansas, and you know, Ruby Bridges is, like, just... I think they're the same age. And so to think about that, that means that the kids who are throwing things at Ruby Bridges are, like, raising people our age. Like, that hate doesn't go away. That, like, idea that they are better than people doesn't go away. That that white supremacy doesn't... That ideology doesn't go away. It just is something that they mask better. And so to believe that if you elect Joe Biden whatever, to to like be president, that all of a sudden people are going to stand down or all of a sudden like we, this is not the America I grew up in becomes the norm again is what, what people's actual goal is. And so what we have to do is make sure that our goals are like louder. Um, I think that we've done a good job at that. I think that when you see um, the kind of unrelenting nature of of what our demands are, and I do want to get into the demands uh, a little bit later. But like when you see that, and when you see how deep they go, and the solidarity that it holds, like Movement for Black Lives today tweeted about what was happening at Mount Rushmore. Black folks um, were showing up. What was happening when families were being separated? Like there's just like this deep level of solidarity that's necessary that Black folks on the front line have always shown, and I think that the demand for solidarity on solidarity to come back um is is being manifested
0: yeah i mean like i really also appreciate y'all both waiting on like the brunch aspect of like how the resistance has kind of responded to this right like i remember there's like even like a famous not angela's famous picture (laughs) from the women's march but there's another one like you know About like I wish Hillary would have won so we could go back to brunch or something like that, right? And the one thing that always like bothered me about this whole notion of like, oh my god, my brunch was interrupted. I still go to brunch. Like as a black person in America, with all the other trash shit that's going on in our lives, I still make time for brunch because making joy, making time for joy and making space and and fellowship. Is a good thing. I mean, we've had brunch meetings. Like these people's concepts of, oh my God, everything's bad, so we can't do anything that we enjoy. Like you were saying, it. You know, the, they're driven to get back to their space of comfort because they're uncomfortable now. Probably many of them for the first time ever, where you know we have been living at the intersection of multiple traumas and a lot of discomfort in in, in many respects and have had to carve out spaces for ourselves constantly, right? So like I do brunch at home with my Lamarca and make my own Bellinis. I go out and have brunch with my family and I love when I can find some place that has bottomless mimosas, right? And we still will have the very deep conversations we all need to have. And we'll still, I mean, like I've been to Oakland and hung out with Tracy and our friend Colin at a wine bar and we still were plotting it. Y'all were actually in there working. (laughs) So like it always bothers me when people have this like notion that, oh, my God, I can't do this XYZ privilege thing that I'm used to doing. And I think that also just gets into like the limit of imagination that a lot of folks who feed into the status quo have about what does it mean to have a world where we don't have certain structures in place that make, cause those things, if they're being honest, they make them feel safe. They make them feel comfortable. And we remove those things. So like specifically the one thing we've all been talking about more as of late defunding the police and reinvesting in community. Like I wrote an article um, last week for work, just based on the uh, polling data that was done by data for progress and the movement for black lives around um, voter, um, uh, Yeah, voter attitudes towards defunding the police, reinvested in black communities, and giving black communities specifically local control, right, over community institutions. And, you know, as many of us could imagine, it split along racial lines. It also split ideologically. But what was fascinating is just like even when the question was just simply about allowing black communities to have more control, people, people who were not black were really against that concept, right? Because, oh, my God, whether they're, whether they're aware of it or not, the idea of Black self-determination, Black freedom, Black liberation has been what has driven so much behavior, um, destructive behavior by white people in this country, really, I mean, since we first got here, right? And so it's really interesting to me in thinking about, um, you know, how we define things and how we do things. Like, I... I don't let the fact that this stuff that's happening, I think most of us don't let this stuff happening keep us from having moments of joy. And like, I also don't have time or compassion for white folks in my, in my, I guess, sphere of of, of space, um, who are just like, oh, I can't wait till I can go and do this again. It's like, well, why aren't you doing that? You're probably really actually doing it anyway. And you're spanking for social media. But I was just thinking and I had asked Ari to pull a quote and I don't, I forgot to um, Share the information with Tracy, but Tracy, if you can think of a quote, but like for me, like I like to look at, you know, different quotes and I know um, Tracy, well actually Tracy already shared a quote. You shared, you shared, you paraphrased Angela Davis earlier on, but for me, like it's something that really, I think helps me stay grounded in these moments and thinking about like self-determination and like how do we figure out and fit our way into the world there's a quote from Audrey Lord: "If I didn't define myself for myself, I'll be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive." And like I really, like feel that as a collective, but also as an individual. Like right now in this moment, as we're talking about, what does it look like to not only like get closer to dismantling uh, these systems and structures, but also like how do we get people to in to co- imagine with us, right? This future that we need to have to thrive. And not just survive. And so, like, how do we, like, how do we, like, continue to shift, right? Because we have the pandemic, we have all things going on, but we still have this barrier in our way called the Democratic Party and certain party elites that think that the only thing that needs to be done and invested in right now is just making sure that Joe Biden, as he exists today... Uh, gets over the threshold and there's so much work that needs to be done across the board. So what what does it look like to co-create and build in terms of liberation and freedom and self-determination while also working to make sure or ensure that we at least have someone uh, elected who isn't actively advocating for our collective gen- genocide? That's such a low low threshold too, by the way.
2: This is a real, it's a real low standard. <laughs> a standard. Real. It's a real standard. It's like such a fucked up standard, right? But like, this is also, this is also how this goes, right? Um, I, I think there's something, and I have, I have a quote, but I've just been thinking a lot, listening to Tracy and, and then you and Noah, about the politics of space, right? And about how, because um, I am firmly team brunch, like very firmly team brunch. Um I actually woke up this morning thinking about brunch. Um, and like what's so interesting is is that like um Tanasi Coates' book, like The Water Dancer, which is like really, really gorgeous. One of the things that he talks about about that was that came up for him while he was writing it was about how important it was um when structuring the book, how much space was important in the way that these folks are moving through their worlds. And in particular, like the notion that the people who are responsible for removing your waste need to be just as invisible as the waste itself. Right. And so like, I'm sitting here in in my apartment right now in downtown Oakland, thinking about how much of the mechanics of the world that I enjoy, the actual human capital that is required to manifest all of that comfort, right. That I personally get to enjoy in this moment. Um, outside of my own political consciousness, how much of that is actively hidden for me and how much further it gets hidden from me, the more money I've made in my life, right? Like literally down to like, I dump garbage into a garbage chute that goes to a dumpster that I could not tell you where it lives, right? Versus like when I was on the east side of San Jose, which is where I grew up as a kid, like I can tell you when I go to my grandparents' neighborhood tomorrow, I can tell you the name of our garbage like guy right he's been the same dude for forever um i know exactly what days the route is i know how the neighborhood changes when trash is out right like all of those things right are like there's the weird politics of space and i think about how going back to tracy's thing about making it break through right how much of our politics especially since the vietnam war has changed towards hiding the impacts of american imperialism and also hiding like the totality of the brutality of the american state from american citizens right writ large and particularly like white suburban american citizens and so thinking about how like um because of the nature of segregation right and because of the neg- uh, like of of because of the way segregation has unfolded in america and continues to unfold in america how that has created political caste systems who experience cultural awareness is breakpoints for some of them. And it's like, it's our life for others, right. And so, like, I a lot of folks, I'm sure who work in in mixed spaces have had this experience of like, white people having an awakening right now, like white people who work in the nonprofit industrial complex professionally, right, like our professional, very, very well paid organizers, quote, unquote, who are white folks who like have absolutely no political consciousness about their own racism or about anti-blackness in America can't struggle to say the term anti-blackness. Right. And, and are just now being like, (gasps) um, when they were also the same people that were like really confused by what the Tea Party was doing. Right. In, in 2008. And so like, it's, it's really fascinating um, to see how that, that childishness that infantilism is like actively preserved and is a function of the active way in which, black and brown people, the pain that we experience relative to the police state and the ways in which we are systemically harmed is actively separated away from white folks. Um, And, and for most, for most white folks, right. And the more privileged you are, right. The further removed you are from it. Um, And so I think that's something that, that, that keeps sitting with me, right. Is like that, whatever we do next and whatever we continue to do next, we have to be able to break across the, like the segregated lines of both like, physical space, but also social media and like cultural space, that's actually the only way this is going to continue having the momentum. It needs to continue to progress. Um, Because also I think one thing that we aren't talking about here, but needs to be honored is that we might win cold and he might not leave. (laughs) And so it's like, what do we do that? Like, you know, so like, so like that, that is also a thing that will like, Exp- like I am actively emotionally preparing myself for and I know a lot of black folks are actively emotionally preparing, and like a like a lot of radical organizers of all ilks are preparing themselves for and most of the folks that work in the nonprofit industrial complex or work in the democratic party writ large have do not have a contingency plan for in any way and I and so like it's also going to be really interesting to see how that labor falls right in the weeks following November 4 now November 3rd um depending on how it all comes out but Anyway, that's a whole long thing. But I think the the quote that I have that I keep sitting with has been like my mantra for the last year is like, the function of freedom is to free someone else. Um, and that's that's from Morrison. And I think that really when it comes to like our work, right, and even talking about mis and disinformation, which, um, you know, some white folks that are that are close in my life were really have been really, really anxious about, right? Um The only answer I've seen to it and all the studies I've seen is one person connecting to another person, that core unit of power building and organizing is the only thing that breaks through that, right? And so it's like the freer we each get, it is not just so that we can be free, right? Like it is also that so that we can have brunch and hang out in wine bars and, and kvetch and like experience life. But it's also so that, and in some ways, even our existence frees other people, right? And it's such a weird thing to experience when you end up being a model for other folks, just by experiencing and living your life because there's a bunch of people who wander through the world and never meet someone who is actively free and working through the journey of colonization and like cultivating their joy in a practice that is guided towards not just self-liberation, but also collective liberation. Um, and it's transformative when you encounter that for the first time, you never forget it. Um, anyway, that's, that's just what I was thinking of about that.
1: I remember I was doing like scenario planning um, about Trump like a while ago, it was like a year ago maybe, and people were like looking at me like I was wild. I was like, okay, y'all, like I've been a part and like seeing voter suppression on like a smaller scale. Um, this is like you know, after seeing what happened in Georgia, um, like living through the recalls in Wisconsin where people were like literally throwing, uh, like calling in bomb threats. I was like, how, what is going to happen on election day or leading up to election day that like will make it so that Trump will not leave or that they will try to steal this election. So I have, you know, the horror th- of horror stories in my mind. And I know and laughs at me when I say this. I was like, I, I've read The Hunger Games. Like, I'm a fan of Octavia Butler. Like, I um, am not surprised by these things. And I think that there's so much to learn from, from them when it comes to, like, how this, like, authoritarian government operates um, so that's one thing. Uh the other thing I want to say about our demands, like one of, one of uh the ways that I feel like I have shown up in the work. Um, I've been talking about Invest Divest for like three years. And I, you know, I've I have evolved in my thinking about it. And one of the ways I feel like I've shown up is like being the person that's like, okay, y'all let like dream about this. Because so often we hear people say like, I want more police. Or police keep us safe, or I want better police, or we need black police, or we need police to turn their body cams on. Um, and be- because the only version of society and safety we've ever been given is policing. Um, and it's reinforced day after day in our television, in our comic books, in all of the ways that we consume media, um, policing has become like this heroic act. Um, and so I like try to talk to people about envisioning what a good day is or what a world that they want to live in is. Um, and so I do this activity where I walk people through like morning to night, a good day. Um, and like I have them like talk about what they, they think about what they see and feel and touch and smell. Um, and then at the end, like, you know, it's a visioning exercise. I have them come back to me and I'm like, OK, and who, um, you know, raise your hand or say whatever if you have police contact. And nobody ever has. And that, like, knocks people off their square because they're like, oh, you know, my, my envisioning of a good day, my envisioning of what my life, what, what I want my life to be is not kinder, gentler, authoritarian defenders of racial capitalism, but it's actually, like, the absence of that system. Um, and so... There's this way I think that we like continue to evolve in in, in talking about it. So at first it was like this invest, divest frame, or that was how I entered into talking about defund, and then I. I really like grew out of that. And I said, I, I believe, I definitely believe in invest, divest. I believe in divesting from police, investing in what communities need. But so often it's seen as like this one to one. Like, okay, if I am, if I divest like $30 million from policing, that means I have $30 million from, um, for a community. And what I have been trying to invite people to do within the past like month or so is to actually dream bigger than that and say, how much do we actually need for community? Do we need fifty million dollars for community? Do we need a hundred million dollars for community? Do we need a billion dollars for community? Whatever it is, and then let's go get it. And so some of that money, yes, should definitely be from defunding and eventually abolishing police. But like what else is there? Like how else do we get this? And like actually dreaming beyond like the constraints of a budget that are like made up anyway. Um, I guarantee you, like, suburb- suburban school districts are not strapped for cash, and they're, like, not saying, okay, well, maybe if we divest from, you know, Bob down the street, then we can have enough for our kids to have books. They just have them. And so, for us, I think that, like, to really look and think about what our communities deserve and say that's what we're getting regardless of where we get that money from, divest from police, yes, because police actually don't equal safety, and they are, like, this presence in our community that we don't need and also like give us the rest of the money that we need to like survive and thrive because it's not like a handout it's actually what we've earned and what we deserve and how the government like has systemically um, you know like intervened in us actually thriving. There was a person who talked to me the other day and asked me if I think that housing could be used as a form of reparations. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like land ownership in itself is like very colonial. And I don't know how you're give- the government gives away housing housing on stolen land. And you know, like reparations for what? Like reparations for slavery? Because you know, y'all tried that in Reconstruction, and then white people took it back. And you could look along the lynching trails um, that go from the South to the Midwest, and talk about white people like going back to reclaim land that was taken, like that they feel was taken from them. Or we talk about reparations for um, redlining, or we talk about reparations for the housing crash of two thousand eight. Like, what are we actually talking about rep- repairing for? Because these actually these systems haven't ended. Um, and so I think that. All like plays into like what our demand is how our government operates and what it means for like how we have to hold a joe biden for example's feet to the fire um because he has shown time and time again he's actually not for us he's just better than trump mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i mean what i do appreciate about this moment and i think you both touched on it too, is and it's something i talked about with Cliff Albright and some really a group of other folks a few weeks back about like harm reduction voting um, and this notion about like voting for the least harmful option. So not necessarily saying that we're willing to accept the lesser of two evils, but really going into um, this process of electoral, you know, engagement in a way where we are recognizing what is happening right now, thinking through what the strategic decision could be for a collective goal And then what is the work to be done going forward? And I think you both touched on some, something you said, Tracy, which I've thought one was absolutely hilarious, but two, it's literally a thing is being, uh, you know, liking the Hunger Games, being a fan of Octavia Butler. I mean, Parable of the Sower has like absolutely sustained me at various sections of my life. Um, for those who aren't familiar, Parable of the Solar, Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler, they are two of my favorite books. It's a short series. You should absolutely read it. Um, but it's about uh you know, well at the time I was reading it, it's about a future America and it's this is around the same time period almost in the book. Um, and things just kind of like, you know, go by the wayside. There is a similar pr- a president who's similar to the president we have right now in place. And In some ways, it's like, oh, my God, how could she have known? But like when you really look and like you were saying, Tracy, as a, as a student of history or if anyone who understands whiteness and power and the way those things, um, you know, the way these different things like intersect, like it's not very hard to have conceptualized a future of America that would actually happen, right? When we look at the way that conservative evangelicals have been like hoarding power or, 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 just, just building the last several decades. Right. Or like when we learn about the way in which Republicans, particularly strategically have been investing in particular races um, to be able to have a pipeline for certain seats down the line, like the fact that Trump has been able to fill so many judicial seats has been like a strategic plan in the making. It's not just something he did on a whim. And so like, you know, we, we, and you also mentioned the Hunger Games, which in the movie version, I have not read those books, but in the movie version, you know, uh, Katniss gets on my absolute nerves. However, Mockingjay part one and two, I will watch those all the time because I just feel in my just bones, the the need to, like, get get mentally prepared for what actual, you know, what resisting oppression looks like in its various forms. And I'm not saying I'm about that, like, armed revolution life, working on it. Bad progressive moment, went to a gun range, got really excited learning how to shoot a big gun the other day. Um, Or a good progressive moment. (laughs) bad progressive moment but whatever I gotta be prepared because the race war might happen and I can't be out here and my kids looking at me like mom you need to keep up you ain't you gotta carry your own weight but like seriously though there are there like you were saying though that there are these moments there are these spaces that help us mentally prepare understand what it is to exist in these these spaces when we do have not even just demagoguery like Trump Trump is just very blatantly, it's not even, and it's not even like people say, oh, they're saying the quiet parts out loud. Quite honestly, they've always been saying the quiet parts out loud, right? Like they're not even the quiet parts. They're just saying it in a way now that people aren't comfortable with anymore. And so like what we're seeing right now from Trump, the the speech he just gave, I mean, the, the, the attacks on protesters in D.C. in particular, just so he could go stage a speech or whatever. Like, there's just so much that's happening right now. It's extremely alarming. But I think I liked what you, how you framed it, Tracy, because, like, it's very easy to just slip into despair because of how wild everything is right now. But we're seeing so many really brilliant, you know, glimpses of what is possible in, 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 in light of what is happening. So... I mean, in spite of all that's going on in the world, people are finding some joy right now in Hamilton the movie on Disney Plus. Um, like I said at the beginning, I have never watched Hamilton. I've listened to like a song or two because my child has insisted Nayla got to see Hamilton when it was when it came here um for like ten dollars with her school. Um, lucky kid. Like they had like a special deal for for students or whatever. But I was just like, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I'm, I'm really a hater because of one of my friends has been in Hamilton. Shout out to Paul Stokely Oval, um, who is just a dope all-around human being. But sorry, bro. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm not a fan. I'm going to watch it. I am going to finally watch it so I can, you know, be smart about it. But, I mean, what does it say? Does it mean anything that so many of us good, quote-unquote, you know, progressives and others – are like, oh my god, this is so amazing, Hamilton. I mean, the idea of a rap, um, of a rap, uh, a musical sounds like fun though. I mean, I have other problematic things that I like, like, I am probably gonna get cheated out for this, but I like Gone with the Wind, it's hella racist, but you know, it's good acting. Um, I don't know, I just gasped, Noah. <laughs> I was used to watch Going with the Wind for most of my life, and then a few years ago, I actually watched it. Maybe about six years ago, I finally watched it and I was like, "This is so good. It's so racist. It's, it's such a racist movie. Like, oh I mean had, but like Hattie McDaniels is a gift
2: right in Hattie that
0: McDaniels movie. is a gift that keeps on giving Vivian Lee I was like so amazed when I found out that Vivian like part of why I watched it too was because they were like Vivian Lee was was English my dad and I were having a conversation about like old movies and, and and stuff like that and my dad was like you should at least watch it to 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 know what the like I was like I already noticed about I took a black you know I took a Blackson film and media class in college. We saw an excerpt. I know all about it. I watched it. I actually enjoyed it, even though it's it's like it's a hella racist movie. I'm not sad that it's been pulled off of you know some streaming platforms or anything like that, but like
1: they put it back.
0: Oh, they put it back. I mean, so that's so you know people can have it going. With it. I mean, I've I don't watch it repeatedly or anything like that. But I was like, oh, this is kind of. I mean, really, what it was too was like the year before Nayla was a Southern Belle. I'm really telling all myself. So we lived in West Virginia. Nayla was like in fifth grade and wanted to be a Southern Belle. Cause Nayla really wanted to wear the big poofy dress and the parasol and all that stuff. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is interesting. And I, I think that's actually how my dad and I got, got into a conversation because I was just like, what the hell do I do? Do I let my daughter be a Southern Belle? I did. She was really cute too, but you know, it's a very bad progressive moment. But it's very interesting, just as everyone's watching. I'm like, I can't judge people for watching Hamilton. Like, why would I do that? I mean, sure, the Founding Fathers and all those other people were, like, horrible and racist and a whole bunch of other stuff and own people. But, like, I found joy watching a really racist movie once upon a time myself. So tell me about Hamilton, y'all.
1: Y'all are like, wow. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no, no not not, not, I have like so much to say about Hamilton. So, I, but I've talked so much. I want Artie to say uh, what they want to say first, because I have. Well, here, here's what hate. I will
2: say about problematic faves. Um, I mean, like, I have read an unconscionable amount of Hunter S. Thompson's writing, so like, I don't get to tell anybody right about what's okay to read or consume or find joy in. Um, also, like. Okay. Just specifically about Gone with the Wind. What's wild about Gone with the Wind, y'all, given that it's a movie that is four hours long, is that, uh, is that one, the production of Gone with the Wind. So I went to the university of Texas and, and so I actually got to read Gone with the Wind in school at a certain point as a part of a class, um, on American literature in the South and really talking about like Southern consciousness, which was, I'm from California. So I was like, this is a very interesting conversation. Um, and one of the things that's really funny about Gone with the Wind in particular was people were furious that Vivian Lee was cast because they literally had tryouts to be – because Gone with the Wind as a book was a sensation. And the book is horrible. Um, it, like, desperately needs an editor. We live it's a nightmare. From,
0: um, where, apparently, where we live at is not far from, like – where uh, what's her name who wrote the book lived originally where we lived at margaret mitchell yeah margaret mitchell like there's a whole community named after her over here in atlanta and we live not far from there yeah yeah
2: that woman did not deserve a pulitzer but like anyway like (laughs) like but like that that book is awful um it is a slog um but it was such a sensation because it glamorized we're talking about culture of white supremacy because it glamorized The South and the antebellum South in particular, and the white antebellum South in this way, um, that white women were trying out literally for days, they were like on they were like camping out like it was American Idol to try out to be Scarlett O'Hara. And then at the end of it, David O'Selznick was just like, let's get Vivian Lee to do it because she's stunning um, and really talented. And that was the and but it was like a backlash before the film was laid out that a true, a true daughter of the Confederacy It was like a protest letter that was written to the next, actually, like that the true daughter of the Confederacy wasn't playing Scarlett O'Hara was like a sham to the film, mm-hmm. um, which is so ironic. Anyway, I like, I, I think that I think something that feels important to say, because I like, I I've resisted watching Hamilton for a really long time, which is weird, because I'm a theater kid by training. Um mostly because i was a little taken aback by the premise of it um and and what's interesting about it is is that i think that it is possible to enjoy something for the thing that it is right and to experience delight in it but tracy and i were talking about how i have a problem where i go to disneyland all the time disneyland is hella problematic in so many ways like we don't even need to talk about the tiki room um but like um, but, like, I think that it's possible to experience joy and to make a choice to experience joy in something and to, like, allow yourself to delight in it and its imperfections. That is actually, like, a really important strategic and self-caring choice. Because I think at a certain point, if you're just trying to be a purist about literally everything, you're never going to be able to enjoy anything on its own principles, right? Um, and even just to accept it for for what it is, right? And be able to, like, wrangle with the complexity of of anything that's created by any human that lives in the systems that we live in. Um, but yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in what Tracy thinks about Hamilton.
1: <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Um, so I do also want to make sure I don't forget to say, um, I would never recommend the hunger games as movies. I think that it is necessary to read the books. Uh, there are so many critiques about our society that are found in the books that just don't make it to the movies. Um, I, there's a critique around policing in the books. There's a critique around capitalism that it's not that's like really different because it's like capitalism along racial lines, It's like in the books, it's not in the movies. Um, when I read the books before I, I saw anything about the movies, like I never read Katniss as a white character. Um, so like that's also really important, um, and I think the last books like really talk about uh, why it's important as we are like building a new world to not replicate the systems that harmed us in the first place. So like that's I think is so important when it comes to the book to the books versus the movies. So that's that's uh, the Hunger Games. Um, Strong second. <laughs> <laughs> yay! Okay, glad somebody else feels that way. Um, so for Hamilton, I think. I am really um I think it's really important to take in art before you critique it. Um it, because I, I see a lot of people who have criticisms. I'm not saying that Hamilton is not above criticism, but it definitely is not. And I have very strong criticisms of Hamilton as a, as a as a piece of art. But it like the criticism, like we can't get to like the real critiques, like the conversations that we typically we honestly should be having because people like haven't actually indulged in the art. So there's like this this like critique that like oh my god they made Hamilton a hero. If you watch Hamilton or if you listen to the soundtrack. Hamilton's, like, narcissistic, like, he's a fucking philanderer, like, he, there's nothing about him that's heroic. I think that it really came um in the time of, like, the anti-hero, where we, like, celebrate people like Loki from um, Thor and, like, folks like that because they have, like, this anti-hero quality. So that to me is really important that if you don't engage with the work, like just because something is named after Hamilton doesn't mean that it makes him the hero. I would actually say the only person who gets like the hero treatment in the whole like um, work is George Washington who doesn't deserve it. And and a little bit of Hamilton's wife. Um, but like, it, but her whole heroic arc was about how much she was willing to suffer for the love of this like flandering man. And so, like, there, there, like, that is like a critique that's out there that people continue to like engage with. Like, I can't believe y'all made a hero out of this man, and the left made the hero, this hero out of this guy who was like basically invented Wall Street. And It's like, no, that's actually not what happened. Um, so that's like important. Um, and I, and I think that there's also something about for me like this disassociation between like what, like, if you really get into the songs or really get into the music, it takes me in and out because I sometimes I forget that it's about what it's about like i I so much of it feels um about like the work that we're doing around like revolution and rising up that when you get into the music and you especially when you see it and it's like black and brown folks talking about it it's really easy to forget that you're talking about this uh, this point in time where uh, black people were enslaved and they were like stealing land like it's so it's really easy to to do that. Um, and I think that there's a difference between people of color, especially black black people engaging with Hamilton versus white people engaging with Hamilton. I joke about it all the time, which is like white people, there's King George. White people love King George. Like he's like one of the few white characters in the whole uh, show. And when he shows up, white people are delighted. Like they lose their shit for King George. I didn't get to see the original uh, cast. I saw um, a production in San Francisco. I was one of like five people of color in the whole audience, and f- four of those people of color came with me. So like, it was very very white, and I was like really confused as to why the, like this group of white people were so interested in Hamilton, because like I know that you don't listen to rap in your free time. It's like old white people. But they were delighted for King George. And I was like, oh, yeah, because white people kind of love colonization. <laughs> like That's
2: so funny. White yeah,
1: like,
0: <laughs> you know, people like, love colonization. Shut up, Tracy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, they love it. They can't get enough. They're so delighted. And, and I have white friends who, like, have seen, like, and they're like, yeah, I love King George. And I always chuckle and when they say why am I laughing I'm like because y'all fucking love colonization like you can't help it it's in your blood <laughs> like you love it um, so anyway I think that that's like really important and I and I think that there's one of my biggest critiques of Hamilton um, is that it's like based in this like culture that's that's so developed by Black and Brown people and then Black and Brown people do not have access to go see it. Those original Broadway cast tickets were so expensive and it became the status symbol of um, like I saw it five times on Broadway. I saw the original cast this many times and it like sucked up the access for people whose art this is really like based on to be able to see it. So that's like a really strong critique I have. I think that Hamilton was like uh, positioned as an abolitionist when that was very, very clearly not who he was. Um, yeah, I think that's like really true. And I do think that there's something, and it was something, um, y'all know, N- Nalini, she and I were like trying to get popping before uh, di- the Disney Plus thing uh, dropped, but but nobody was really biting, which was this idea that it would have been really important, especially as we're in this moment of history where we're like reckoning with history. Like I don't go to Broadway to get my history. (laughs) Like I, I just don't. Um, But there are people who do, there are people who have created study guides around Hamilton and like all of these things um, it would have been really important for me to see folks like Daveed Digg, who played Thomas Jefferson, or Chris Jackson, who played George Washington, to, like, actually engage with activists who are on the ground now. To, like, talk about, like, the duality of playing, like, a slaver when they were, like, people who would have been, ens- you know what I mean? Like, when, when your people have been enslaved. Um David Digg obviously did that amazing video uh, with the movement for black lives. I was like, I, I still, I get chills even thinking about it because it was so good. But like there, I think that there, I think that based on the art form that is Hamilton and where it came from, based on like how Lin-Manuel portrays himself, there was a responsibility from Hamilton and from that cast to do more to address history that they did not do and i think that that i think that that is such a missed opportunity um and i mean maybe they could rectify it like i would love to see them do it on the back end but i think as we saw the hype going into hamilton um or into like the the drop on disney plus i think we should have seen that same hype happen with a reckoning with history um and, and like saying actually hamilton was not an abolitionist and actually thomas jefferson was pretty awful and actually you know what i mean like these things were like portrayed a little bit in the show, but not enough for us to like be be consuming it and like interacting within this point in history. So that's mm-hmm. my Hamilton take.
0: I appreciate that, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be honest. Like my 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 aversion, so to speak, to my resistance, maybe has been more so because it has been more of a of, of a status thing. more so like a a in crowd like oh my god you just have to see hamilton i'm like i've literally had no desire to see that i'm like i don't care i'm not inspired but what i do appreciate like what you were saying is because if you have a child like mine and some of their friends who you know they have various rangings of understandings of history at their age but like it is something that has gotten them talking about, you know, different things in different ways. And so, like, that is something that I can appreciate. And it is bringing a genre to a generation that has had an interesting relationship, I think, maybe with the idea of theater musicals. I mean, you know, my kids watch Glee, but I think that the appreciation my daughter now has for, you know, musical theater not being like really in an environment where that's been a thing um, is is just fascinating. Watch my son to some, to a lesser extent, but same, you know, um, it's come alive and connected with them in a real way. But I appreciate what you were saying though, Tracy, about like, what if, you know, the cast, particularly, you know, if a cast of color, right? Like what if the cast actually had come together and there was some other things? Like, I think Tracy, when we were talking about this before, you were saying like, even like the Twitter account, like, you know, tweets out happy birthday and stuff and there's like mm-hmm. there yeah, other the alternative that. world that's been created around these very real people um and it's just it's just interesting in this moment right where we're we're like talking about like a reckoning and like reconciling the history and stuff that we still have these spaces of glorifying figures like it was really interesting for me a couple of weeks ago to see like a big push to have the Teddy Roosevelt statue removed from outside of I think it's the American History Museum in New York I remember going to when I was in New York a couple of years ago um, around Columbus Day there was a Columbus Day action um, in the museum it was a walking toward the museum action basically and like I remember being in the museum and they were doing mic checks and it was like it was, it was brilliant stuff right but like learning all this stuff about Teddy Roosevelt as an adult like I I knew he was a rat bastard but there were like things the, the horrific things about Teddy Roosevelt That I never knew until we were doing You know this 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 action And it was just like wow This is like even for those of us Who do know things or consider ourselves informed form there are still things And so I mean It would have been something like Even if it was like one of those You know after you, they show like a movie Or whatever there's a shorter You know behind the scenes Or the real history of you know, I've seen that on like the history channel and stuff, right? Too. Like there'll be a movie about something there will be like the real story of some viking or something, right? Like to, to to show you the difference between what the dramatization was and then what was the the historical record as we know it. But like does it does it make people less 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 like radical or progressive in their politics if they enjoy Hamilton or <laughs> I'm going with the wind? I'm just wondering.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> i have a thought
2: on that but i want to let tracy reply if she has something
1: no no please i have more thoughts but i want to hear from you
2: <laughs> so, so like i so like i think if like we like i say this as somebody who like really is like deeply invested in professional wrestling right like i don't want there to be stand, like they, i can't live in a world with those standards right <laughs> um like i need to live I can't live in a world for cultural justice to that ex- that is defined that way. Right. I can only live in a world with cultural mercy. Um, I also think that some things are just fun. Right. And I think there's something about the purity of like, are you a bad progressive if you do X? And I know that we're joking about it, but it is actually like a realized thing for some people. Right. Like, like I think there's something about those conversations that really smacks to me of like, the kids who were like, when I was in high school, I was one of these kids in high school. It was like, ugh, if you listen to pop music or if you listen to those things, then you're like a sellout or a hack or whatever. And then would also like go home and listen to those things because they were like fun and they were bops and like, like. But like, is there something about like the poseringness of it, right? Of like gatekeeping people's joy, um, that I think is just like. Joyless, right. and I, I think that liberation is supposed to be a joyful act, right and it's supposed to be a healing act, and there's something about gatekeeping like that that's inherently joyless i I really appreciate the things that Tracy was saying around like that it really the critiques for it really should be held by folks who've actually experienced it because I think that's also a really common reaction is to critique something that we haven't consumed. Um, and therefore we're not even having an informed conversation about it, right? Like we're just mm-hmm. reacting. What we think the cool kids have said, um, and you can define ki- cool kids however you want to, depending on what part of the internet you come from. Um, and I think the bigger thing that I'm really struck by, like as someone who grew up as a hard musical theater kid, is like two particular things about um, Hamilton were really striking to me when it first started. One was is like how much money it made, like so quickly. Like Hamilton made had the had the highest had the second highest Labor Day. Box office for a Broadway show behind the Lion King, right? Like, <laughs> like, um, and so it's it's it stands like head and shoulders, right? Above like the amount of like excitement, energy, and like box office power of like any other. There's like, it's literally, there's not like another musical in modern Broadway history that has the same sort of umph. Like the next closest thing you have is the producers, but similar to the Lion King, right? There was like a movie before the producers, right? And like, like Disney was behind I the love Lions.
0: the producers. Sorry. Oh God. No, I'm a Mel Brooks stan forever. I um, love the producers and I, I have talked mad stuff about the remake that I refuse to watch because like, I'm not really a fan of remakes, but like, I love the original, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I mean, I do actually now that now that we're talking in this conversation about like being able to critique things that we've seen. Like, I probably should watch it, but then I'm just like, I like Matthew Broderick and all, but no, there's there's. Ugh. Anyway, go ahead. I love the producers.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I think like it's also really interesting. The anyway, I could go on a whole long thing about the producers and about Mel Brooks' obsession with Hollywood, but like the producers is also hella problematic in a yeah. bunch of too. Right. Like it's hella problematic and like, and in terms of like it's sexism in particular. Right. But like, even anyway, I think Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick are incredible. And I think the actual, like the production of the producers of the remake of the producers is like also very clearly like Mel Brooks doing what he c- wanted to do with it the whole time. Um, Cause the story mm-hmm. of the producers is also like, basically, he basically made the producers on his own too, which is also such like this really amazing love letter to, to a genre. Um, but like, I think the thing that's really striking to me about Hamilton, which feels like a really big cultural moment overall is like, there is, I, except for like the color purple, right? Like I, I struggled to name another Broadway show I've ever seen where basically the entire cast, almost overwhelmingly, including all of the main characters are portrayed by black and brown actors one and, and two where like um, and also they're all holding positions of power, which is also like the actors are all portraying Ooh. people positions of power, which is also really interesting. The third thing that also feels really revelatory about it is actually this Disney Plus release is also a really big thing because I've seen multiple folks talk about the inaccessibility of the theater and about how Broadway has been historically reticent, right? Like even the producers as a movie, right, that came out, the second one had a lot of the people from the original Broadway cast with the exception of Uma Thurman, which was a nightmare of a casting call. But like they, they explicitly did a lot of the shooting in the way that you would have on a Broadway set, but very explicitly did not mm-hmm. shoot it on a Broadway. Um, and, and that was a really interesting choice because there's a bunch of things that you lose as a part of that, but there's also things that you gain as a part of that choice. And so I think the, the things that I've heard from folks about, like literally talking about like the core accessibility of the theater, not even talking about like the financial accessibility of the theater, but literally being able to watch a full stack Broadway production with subtitles. Right is also really revelatory, in who it opens up that experience to, and also how it changes the dialogue of like who can access that specific form of art, um, which is, is increasingly difficult to access, and is in some ways like a bunch of folks in theater are adopting, adapting the way the theater actually functions in the time of COVID in ways that arguably we should have been doing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I think all of that is really yeah going to kind of your your point about accessibility, too, it's also such an interesting thing because it was such like a cultural thing and like a status thing in New York in particular around getting Hamilton tickets. and now on the flip side of it, right like any like there's a whole bunch of people who, even if they could have afforded tickets, would never have been able to experience and enjoy Hamilton, right who now have the opportunity to basically it in its full power, right mm-hmm. um, which is also really fascinating.
0: I, I mean, I definitely yeah. agree with that. Like the, the when they started doing Broadway across America and would have like, I remember that's how I saw cats for the first time when I was in law school. But like that, so that was something, but I think, you know, you are making a really good point about the, about the making broad musical theater, making Broadway more accessible to, to people. Um, and, and it is something like I've like Nala. I know my, again, my daughter, because my daughter is like the greatest thing at everything. But like Nayla has several different musicals that they found like on YouTube scouring for, you know, people who basically recorded music, you know, when they've gone to them. It's like, oh, you should watch this. or Oh, you should watch this. But it is really hard unless you can find the rare one on, you know, YouTube or maybe on Netflix. I saw Company on Netflix um, years ago but like it's it's not something that has necessarily been accessible and it's a lot of possibility and imagination that opens up doors uh again like I was saying like my myself as a kid or my kids have not necessarily had opportunity for Tracy are you gonna say something
1: yeah I mean no I, I I think that all of that is exactly exactly spot on but I'll also say that There's something about it's it's this interesting thing that we do that when something's at the height of success or becomes um, like a, a cultural phenomenon. We don't dig deeper in critiques, so like I, re- I specifically think about the fact that. So I went to see Hamilton in San Francisco. Um, me and a couple of friends like became members of the San Francisco Theater House, and we got tickets um, to like Wednesday matinees or something because it was the cheapest thing we could get. And so if you did that, then like you'd ha- you we had like Into the Woods and Hamilton and The King and I and something else. And so the first one we went to go see was The King and I. And I had never seen it. And I was like looking around like, this shit is racist. Like, I couldn't believe it. Oh, The King and I is so fucked up. It's, it's so, so fucked up. racist. I was floored. I was scandalized. I, the people I was with had never seen it either. We were like, what the? F-? Like, we were incense. Like, we could not believe it. And so, like, yes, there's, like, this critique to have around Hamilton, but there are other really big shows that are super racist that we're not talking about. Um... And so that's like I think that like the the not assuming best intentions of like just like trying to be contrarian, like not liking something is not a personality, and it happens every time. So like I remember everybody hated Star Wars, or supposedly that that was the thing. Like if you didn't watch Star Wars, you hated it. But now everybody loves John Boyega, right? Like. Or there's like a real interesting conversation I think that's happening around Beyonce right now, um, and around capitalism and who she is. And, um, uh, and people are like trying to throw bell hooks in our face. Like, do you remember what Bell Hooks said about Beyonce? Yeah, I think that what Bell Hooks said was kind of messed up. And I agree with some of her critiques, but I didn't agree with other ones. And that's the way we should engage with people, even when they are heroes. So, like, we can be able, I can, I can say like when Beyonce drops something, I drop everything and I listen to it. That's, that's it. Like I am part of the hive and I can be like, hell yeah, Beyonce's a capitalist. And you know, when we eat the rich, you might have to go first. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a way that we can like say that we really enjoy a art form or something that's been produced for our enjoyment. Um, while also like critiquing the person who's doing the art and doing it in a way that doesn't like call into question people's humanity. And it doesn't, um it doesn't mean that critiquing them means that you don't like it or you don't like them. Um And so, so much of our culture is all or nothing. I mean, we see that in our politics too. Like it's, if you don't, if you critique the politician I like, that must mean that you're a fascist or whatever it is, or a neoliberal or whatever it is. And that's not true. Like, we should be having like generative discussions around these things and it should be in the service of like being better and, and, and and, I don't know, it should just be in the service of something that's like less about, Oh, you like this thing. You're not woke enough. Mm -hmm.
0: No, absolutely. And it's just like that whole, this whole gatekeeping thing about like who is woke, like what is the right position? I mean, it's, it's been an interesting cycle anyway, right? But like there, what is it? Oh yeah, the Twitterati, right? Which, I mean, I agree there can be some of that. I don't agree with the way that, you know, certain senior advisors for certain candidates have used it. However, there is this idea that if you do certain things, you like certain things, if you don't read certain books and if you don't listen to certain, you know, entrenched white supremacists, you know, do bro podcasts that you're, you know, not, progressive in the right way if you talk about race and you're not, you know, understanding that class is king, you're not progressive in the right way, right? Like, so, so, I mean, I agree with what you're both breaking down. And you've also now made the case for me to read some books And watch some versions of some movies that I had been resisting because I'm just stubborn. See, like, I can admit, like, I'm just a stubborn asshole about some things who has some, like, not so great habits sometimes, like shooting guns at ranges and watching Gone with the Wind. But like, I, I really do appreciate, like, how we're having this conversation and really thinking through, like, tying it back into, like, the idea of, like, self-determination, like, defining for ourselves, like, what brings us joy, how we show up in this work, and how do we build and, you know, continue to love a know without judging her um, for her vices, but, like, and thinking about, like, you know, how we, how we, you know, in this work that we're doing and in and, and some of the different tools and ideas and like all the people who are coming into the fold, because there are a lot of people who are just like really like something has to change. Like my ex, the kid that is actually going to vote for this is his first time voting since he voted for Obama in 2008. Um, so he is a 40 year old black man who has not voted in 12 years because he never saw the point in it. You know, he did what he's supposed to do to vote for the first black president, but he never felt like anyone spoke to him. And even now, like what I said to him, though, was about the different lower, like the down ballot races that we have. And I started talking about like local races and things of that nature that clicked for him. And I know there are other people who are doing work, engaging with folks and they're saying the same thing. Like it is is we're we have seen in despite all the BS here in Georgia, we saw explosive turnout in our primary election in spite of all the hijinks we saw explosive turnout in the 2018 election that states that was stolen from Stacey Abrams with the shenanigans around 50,000 55,000 votes right so we know people are like tuning in and getting connected but like When we're thinking about how to balance, right, getting our folks the right information, actively challenging disinformation, and bringing them into a fold, like what are we bringing them into? Where are we shepherding them to beyond just simply casting this ballot? Like what should that process be looking like? And I know folks talk about you should find a movement home, but like how do we break that down to the masses so that we don't just have folks like, I don't know, on a Sean King email list somewhere or something like that? Ooh,
2: <laughs> how do we spare the masses Yikes! Um, from King Sean? Um, I think that there's, I think there's two things, right? One is, is actually like a part of it is like our responsibility as folks who have movement homes. Right. And, and those of us who kind of, at least I don't remember when someone decided that this was true for me, but have somehow morphed into being movement elders in some capacities. Um, and and I don't know when that happened to a bunch of us, but I feel like we looked up, and one day it did, and and so like there or we're transitioning into that place or seen that way to folks who are new, and so like I think that there's, I think that there's a responsibility that we have, right, to like make the movement welcoming, right, and to help people find movement homes, right, and to help them get connected to stuff, right, and and um and I'm I'm sober in a twelve step tradition, and we talk about how there is. Something about making it irresistible that is a part of our responsibility, right? Like you can't make someone make the decision to devote themselves to this. But if someone is considering it, right, it is our responsibility to, to make it something that feels worth doing. Um, I think so that's one thing that occurs to mind. The other thing that comes to mind too, and I've just been thinking about and reading Adobe Wells' autobiography lately, which has been a very amazing thing. It was handed to me by the doctor Leona Harris when I stopped by the Adaby Wells Museum in in Holly Springs, like 18 months ago. Um, and I, I think one of the things I'm struck by is there's this moment where she's talking about the lynching of her friend um, um, and talking about how that really changed how she felt um, in in Nashville at the time in Memphis, sorry. And about how one of the things that kind of came in the light of that was there was an organized max exodus of black folks from Memphis. They were just like, we're done y'all like we are done um because it wasn't just a lynching as most lynchings weren't just lynchings they also like disassembled like disassembled this person's grocery store and also mobbed and looted at a whole section black section of town um and so black folks were like we're all moving to oklahoma because oklahoma had just become a thing um it was still the territory of oklahoma And it's really fascinating talking about self-determination about how as soon as you talk about – and I know I mentioned this earlier about how people start getting freaked out about black individualized political power. Um, As soon as black folks in Memphis in like – this is like 1880 or something like that. I'd have to look at the exact date. But like they start going like, we're all leaving. We're all counting our coins and we're moving to Oklahoma. We don't care. We'll walk. And as soon as that happens, all the black folks in town, all the white folks in town start panicking and start coming to like Ida and all of the black leaders in town being like, could you get them to stay? Because like, we don't know what we're going to do if they all leave. And Ida was like, sounds like a personal problem, right? Like, and It was like, hey, y'all, we scouted out these places in Oklahoma, you can all go, right? Like, um. And so I think that there's... There's also something about recognizing that that there's also going to be a version of this freak out panic that's going to come in the in the nonprofit industrial complex and in the political left as more black political power builds. And we're all seeing versions of this as more black political power builds right? There is going to be a reaction of panic, right? From a bunch of people who are used to profiting off of our labor and exploiting our labor um, and are used to just being able to like call on us and we say jump and they say, and we say how high, and that's the expectation of that relationship. There's also going to be like a freaking out of like what to do with it. I think it's also worth noting that if we do have record turnout this year, in large part will be in responsible, it'll be the it'll be on the backs of a lot of really amazing long-term electoral and advocacy work that has been building for a really long time, that is going to be the actual network that people are able to plug into in order to access things like the ballot. Um, and it and almost all those organizations are black and brown led at the like the local levels. Um, and on the flip side, if we lose, we're absolutely gonna be the ones who get blamed. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, like, no matter what, right? So I think that those things are all, like, living in the simultaneity of, like, culturally, this is becoming a really momentous election for a lot of folks, including a lot of folks who got disengaged after Obama, um, which feels like something that is worthy of a case study in and of itself. Um, but I also think that it's it's simultaneously going to be true that... We're going to start seeing a reaction to a coalescing and an emergence of new political power where, and I'm already sitting in rooms where it's happening, where people are like freaking out in multi-million dollar year organizations about where, where do they fit in this moment? Um, And they don't know how. Um, And so like that, that. That panic and that inability to vision, right, which a lot of those folks have historically had, and obviously this isn't true of all of these organizations, but for a lot of them that particularly have not engaged with an intersectional analysis of their problems, it's very true, like they're going to start freaking out and panicking. And there's going to be backlash. and There's also going to be people who are hurt. And there are, those are going to be our people who are leading outside of those organizations and the people who are trying to lead within those organizations. Um, and so I think there's, there's multi-prongs of it around sustaining our folks who are leading this work, making it inviting for new folks who want to come in. Um, and then also on the other side, just bracing for a backlash that is going to come our way when lose or draw. Um, when the work needs to continue and it's not happening on terms that are comforting for white people that are used to feeling really comfortable about their leadership. Um, Cause I think all that's coming.
1: I could listen to you do the back and forth between like history and now all day. Like, like, how you weave, um, like, Ida B. Wells and, like, what happened uh, with folks, like, leaving to go to Oklahoma to, like, right now. It's, like, the this is us of Black history. Like, I love it so much.
0: I love you, too, so much. Like, yes, that was amazing. Adding, also, Ida B. Wells' autobiography to my list of books I need to be reading this summer. Um, So, Ari, like, as we're, like, you know, wrapping up, because I've just so enjoyed talking to both of you. And I know, Tracy, that you have, you know, some experience with contributing to the visioning for some things and some of these things, like voting tech, right? Like, so we were talking some recently about different tools and strategies people are using to be able to, and it's not just democratizing, like, you know, the the actual business of getting people out to vote. Right? Like the entire ecosystem from voter registration and, you know, how we cast our ballots. There's a whole big deal here happening with we, um, with the, the way you, um, do your requests for absentee ballots and whether or not they can build a system in time for the election for that to even happen. And so, and people even talk about like, can we, can't we just do online voting or just like vote on our phones through a text message? I personally think that's a horrible idea, but, other it is. smarter <laughs> folks may know better. I mean, I think it's a bad idea, just from all the spam and other things that can happen, and people hacking phones and stuff. But like, but when we're thinking about like even with with all the elections that are happening right now, and people are still finding ways to 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 move, we always talked about moving our, our organizing offline, and so many folks have had to move their organizing online, right? Or you know, making sure that the online organizing people were doing was actually matching up with what they were doing on the ground. And because of the pandemic, so much that's on the ground is actually limited now. Um, but there are ways that people can use tools and not use technology in that very detached way. Unfortunately, a lot of folks tend to engage with it, but like technology itself can be a very engaging tool. So I'll kick it back to you, Ari, just to talk a little bit about like um, voting tech. And just how we can make it safer for our folks to do this work,
2: oh man, sorry for interjecting. I just like free- I just like panic and like and a part of my brain starts to, to get set on fire every time someone talks about like we should vote online or we should vote via text messages or why can't we build an app for this thing, and it's like y'all like there's there's um th- yeah because i'm because I'm a technologist and and for folks like. This is also a piece of context about me So I also run my own tech company and spend a lot of time in rooms with technologists with varying levels of connection to electoral politics or movement politics, sometimes none, um, having conversations about core infrastructural problems in the movement. Um, and it's it's really interesting because when there there is kind of this reflexive reaction to anything that feels challenging or difficult or boring, in society to be like, well, let's slap an app on it. Right. And when it comes to when it comes to voting, um, strangely, also similarly to protesting, right, and taking direct action, oftentimes the answer is less tech, actually, in terms of digital tech in particular, and actually what we need is like simpler stuff. Right. Um, And so as an example, the most secure form of election technology available to us is a piece of paper and a pencil. Um, like by miles and miles. And, the, and paper ballots are by far the most secure way to run elections. Um, and the reticence and the, the unwillingness in some places to go back to paper ballots, particularly in America, and instead wanting to rely upon voting machines that we know are unreliable or hackable, or just not maintained well, or have like really bad u- or confusing user interfaces, um, or don't give really good accurate receipts of of what they're what they're processing. Um, all of those things are are issues that are one signs of absolute corruption that exists inside of our space. Two, people who are really obsessed with perpetuating voter suppression because it's the only way they can maintain their power is by suppressing the vote. Um, And third, like a a modern obsession with the idea that technology will solve problems for us. Um, And I think the fourth is an unwillingness to just wait to count the ballots, right? And and all of that is really ironic because the cycle, what we're seeing is... The actual electoral infrastructure we have in America is badly, badly broken, um, in part by design and then also in part by neglect. Um, it's one of the weird ha- side effects of the 10th Amendment is that every single state gets to make up its own jolly old mind about how elections work. Um, and also there's some issues that exist systemically across Um, All of the states. And so I think the biggest issue that we've run into this cycle is two things, one of which I've spent a bunch of time on. And the other one, a lot of other people are trying to solve uh, with varying results. One is how do you register folks to vote remotely if you can't go stand on a street corner and register them? Um, There's a lot of people in America who will self-motivate to register to vote. Um, and that's great. But most of those people are not the type of people that we're trying to register with voter registration efforts. Um, so how do you reach those people in a way that's like safe and secure? Um, the other one is how do you get people access to the ballot in a way that is safe after they're registered? Which means for a lot of us, re- requesting vote by mail ballots. Um, and there's been a bunch of elections stuff and things in courts with people fighting over everything from in Alabama. You have to, um, and I just want to name and honor this correlation because I've been sitting, I say this as sitting in California, there's absolutely been a historic correlation in the country between states going all vote by mail and their whiteness. So like Washington, Colorado, like, uh, Oregon, right, were some of the first states to do it, the larger your black population is, particularly in your voting brackets, the more likely you are to have really absurd and draconian restrictions around vote by mail access. Um, And so like, as an example, in Alabama, in order to request a vote by uh, mail ballot request, I think you have to have a copy of your photo ID, Right, attached to it, and it also has to be notarized. So you have to go down, right? And like, I just want to be clear: the only thing I've ever gotten notarized in my whole life was my divorce paperwork. Like, it's literally adding a poll tax and also an additional process on requesting a vote by mail ballot. Um, and so we have everything on that scale that we're staring at when it comes to even getting ballots in people's hands securely. That's without talking about, and I know, and Tracy, and Tracy, I'm sure you can talk way more about this, right? Like, we saw in Georgia, which is the data we have the latest for is that like about one in five of the people who requested vote by mail ballots on time did not receive them. So that's 20% of the people who requested them. We saw the other side of this in Louisville where we saw similarly, right? Like there was a large portion of people and we also saw this in Wisconsin, a large portion of people who requested vote by mail ballots did not get them in time. So they were forced to go to the polls if they still wanted to vote, but because they had also shuttered a bunch of polling locations in a bunch of places and that there was this massive explosion of people who were trying in some instances, literally running in Louisville to try to get to polling locations that had massively consolidated in Louisville's instance down to one for an entire county. Um, And still we're like struggling to make sure that their ballot was actually cast. Um, And so all of that is a really great forecast for November is that there's been a bunch of things and there's some places where tech can help. um, And then there's other places where the actual core bottlenecks are systemic failures inside of a system that was in some instances radically neglected and been incredibly underfunded for a very long time. um, And then other places is deliberately being gutted and circumvented um, in the name of, as I think Stacy would describe it, keeping cartoon villains in power. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like a whole brain dump about that. I'm really curious what Tracy um, has to say from from her perspective and vantage point.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I'll leave uh, Georgia to I know because I think that you have some experience, but I do I do want to talk about Wisconsin a little bit and what happened. Um, It was hard for me, and I try to balance this out because I'm, like, fiercely protective of uh, my people. Um, And sometimes that, like, will also mean that I will call out people who should be our friends. Um, And so um, Lit, which is a group I I work with, um, and they're near and dear to my heart in um, Milwaukee. It's Leaders Igniting Transformation, or Lit, um, had been kind of at the forefront of call, calling for um, the the election to be postponed in Wisconsin, and for all of these like safety measures to be taken, so they were like, "Let's do this," like you know, whatever. And all of these people either like ignored them or didn't like move with the urgency that the moment required. So you have this group that's like led by young people saying, we want to vote. We want to, we want to vote safely. These are the ways that we could vote safely. And you people in power need to be listening to it. And for the most part, people were not advocating for them because it wasn't sexy yet. And so then, um as we saw coronavirus, like, grow and more people have concerns about it, um, then all of a sudden the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, like, jumped in and uh, the governor jumped in and people were, like, trying to file injunctions and trying to pass laws or whatever. And the Republicans in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, like smack all of that down so what you, what you had was all of these people who like didn't even know until the day of like what was going on and in addition to that they like closed down all but four polling locations in the city of milwaukee so nowhere else in the in the state saw anything like that just milwaukee where you have like the largest population of black people um and a minority uh minority majority if that's like you use city and so my mom was, like, caught up in that, um, and so was my niece. So my niece is pregnant, which I'm really excited about. Um, and uh, she's she was like, okay, well, I don't know. We don't know enough about coronavirus for me to, like, leave the house. She had just moved. She requested an absentee ballot. She didn't get it in the mail. This is the first election she didn't vote in, because I call her every election day since Obama. So she was old enough to vote. And my mom, who has a polling location in her building, and her friend is a polling worker in the building. And I was like, mom, you need to request absentee ballot, like you need to do all these things. Um, And she's immune compromised. And she's like, no, 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 no. Like, my, the poll location in my building is, 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 is going to be open. And you know, moms think they know better <laughs> than you. And I don't live in Wisconsin. So she thought she had like the most up to date information from her friend who's a poll worker. And then she found out that morning, the morning of the election, her friend who's the poll worker found out. That like that polling location was going to be closed. And the polling location that my mom needed to go to had like miles long of a line. And this is still, again, when we didn't know enough about coronavirus. We didn't know um, about like how it could be inside versus outside and all of that. So she didn't feel comfortable and safe enough to vote. So literally, the first time in her adult life that there was an election to vote in, she wasn't able to vote. And those are the kind of like suppression tactics that we are going to see going into November. Um, and that we should be prepared for. And it's that people have been ringing the alarm about this for a long time. And people don't seem to care about it until it's a, until it's time to vote. And they don't do the work to prep for it, unless you're Stacey Abrams or, you know, and say or all these other people who are like voting rights advocates, but everyone should care about this and nobody does. And then you look to the voting rights advocates when things break down and they look back like, why weren't you worried about this? Um, So it has been extremely frustrating and it does worry me for November.
0: Yeah. I mean, just even, I mean, Georgia, but looking at the whole landscape, I mean, what's happening in Texas right now, you know, Texas, Texas is exploding with, with COVID-19 cases. um, And they are one of the, one of the strict States, similar to Alabama, which will not permit, um, you know, uh, uh, the use of absentee ballots by anyone because of the pandemic, right? That was not found to be a, a reason. The Secretary of State refuses to allow it to happen. You know, the state legislature, like no one is taking action. I know the Democratic Party and others actually tried to sue, but um, that was ultimately overturned at, at, at like higher levels of the court, like upon appeal, because they were trying, basically, I, I I thought it was not necessarily the best strategy, but they were trying to look within the confines of what they have in terms of, like, what the actual state law is. And I think for folks who are really trying to understand whether or not electoral politics matters for your life, I mean, right now, we're seeing so many different examples. We're getting, like, a crash course, as so many has said, in civics right now and, you know, local gov- local state government, what it matters. Because, um, like you were mentioning already, you know, with our mail ballot, like, So many of our states don't have vote by mail. So we are stuck with the absentee ballot rules that exist within a given state. And unless you have a secretary of state, like they did in West Virginia, that was willing to set aside the rules temporarily because of the pandemic, right? And also depends upon the grant of authority, whether or not the secretary of state in your given state can even do that, right? Or the state elections board, whoever. New York, I think, did the same before folks start talking about, oh, that's the South. New York also has pretty archaic um, voting laws as well. Um, but in Texas, despite the spiking, they have they have runoff elections happening on July fourteenth, and they are not allowing people. There are only like four or five specific categories. One of them has to do with disability. Now there is some language in a court decision, the court decision that overturned the 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 this decision that allowed for people to, to request absentee ballots. There is some language that basically talked about whether or not people felt that their susceptibility to COVID-19 could arise to the level of being consistent with the interpretation of a disability of a law. So basically it left it up for people's individual review to decide for themselves whether or not they feel that their potential, whether immunocompromised or whatever it is, would make them... Because it's not like you have to give a doctor's note or anything to certify that you qualify for that particular exemption. However... Considering how we've been seeing Republican-controlled states in particular, this notion of, you know, prosecuting people for voter fraud when people are legitimately just scared for their health. And rightfully so. We are seeing cases on the rise. We're seeing rising deaths. I mean, all types of stuff. And they're they're still even, I mean, Ari, you had it. Like there, It's not even like there's a treatment or a shot or something they can give us right now for it, right? So... Georgia, you know, thankfully we got our ballots. One of my friends who's also immunocompromised, she, she and her daughter both are, they didn't get their ballots. And I was like, damn, I wish I had known that they didn't get their ballots because this other back channel email address I found to be able to, wait. like we got our, Mel and I got our ballots because I happened to stumble upon another email address embedded in the website. Cause you know, you guys, if you see like the little email box and it's like, click here to contact us. Well, when I clicked it, that had a completely different email address than the email address that was publicly listed on the site or on the Secretary of State's site. And that email address was the one that they were checking and answering. It was the wildest thing. And so, you know, we're now supposed to go into, and if folks watched, and she could be next, you could actually see say cheering out who is still the head of the Fulton County Board of Election. And testimony, like in the end of part two, um, and those—that's the same board of elections that drastically screwed things up um, this go around in terms of not processing absentee ballot applications. Which I think you are right, it's right, Ari. It's about twenty percent of people who requested in enough time um, to not receive their ballots. And so, like when we're looking at all these things and how to get access and just make sure people have access to me. I don't know that folks realize that there are states where there isn't even Texas. is So one of them, I think Jersey and maybe New York are states where your voter registration is paper and has to be mailed or delivered, turned in. So folks have been freaking out with these articles about uh, voter registration is down and all this other stuff. It's like, one, we're in the middle of a health pandemic. It's probably not the first thing on people's mind. What folks also don't take into consideration is a lot of the people who do the actual year-round civic engagement work who would be registering voters right now have been filling in the gap where government is failing communities and families and stepping up and doing mutual aid-type work, right? So a lot of folks, especially I remember talking to folks in the first month of the pandemic— Um, thinking about census work the census is still actually something that's going on people could be taking their census if you haven't done it already like i was talking to folks like you know how are you approaching people what are you doing and like folks are making sure that communities the people what do you need do people have resources how to advocate for things like that's been the primary concern not registering to vote and so you also though have states where you have to physically uh, fill out an application and mail it in texas is one of those as well and so there are all these different limitations and stuff that exist um, as we're t- we're talking about all these things. So like, you know, everyone freaking out like, oh my god, we just got to get rid of Trump. Yes, definitely agree with that as an imperative. But there are so many other things that we need to build into process. And I really hate saying the corny saying of oh, we can walk and chew bubble at the same time. Well, we really can do a bunch of different things, right? We can. Build opportunities and entry points to conversations about freedom, liberation, and self-determination, as well as, like, working on some of these in-the-meantime strategies. And so, just, like, final thoughts on you guys, like, as we wrap up, moving forward and thinking about just where we are going into the rest of the summer and into the fall. And I think R.E.U. also touched on something that was very real. What happens if he refuses and refuses to leave? I think there's a piece in Newsweek yesterday about that, and that there are some emergency power provisions. And or maybe it was you, Tracy, but I can't remember. But like, it's very scary. Um, it's very real. It's not unexpected or unpredictable. But folks not having a contingency plan and not really staying the line. I mean, what's really scary to me though is the fact that the courts may not intervene, and folks just might sit on their hands and be like, "Oh, what can we do?" And I don't. I don't know what the answer is, but I love to hear your as we, we close out. So I can to Tracy.
1: Uh sure. Um well I don't know if I can touch that question about what happens if he doesn't leave. That feels like a, a large a larger question. Um but I guess my closing out um, is really around, like, how to engage with art and how to dream of something bigger. Um, this c- country, this world, this life that we're living um, needs to, like, open up uh, by for some joy, as Ari told us earlier. Um, and so if you find joy in things that are problematic, like, don't Feel guilty about that. Like, there's not ethical consumption under capitalism. And so, um, you know, just be willing to engage with it and critique it um, because nobody is above uh, criticism. So, that's my closing thought.
2: I am really sitting with, you know, there's what can you do today? Like, what can we do a day at a time? And what what can we do in a way that enables us to show up for tomorrow in a way that is sustainable? Because I think it's so easy stepping back. And I think for folks like, you know, I, I think the three of us have been doing this for a while, but I think folks that are newer to this analysis and this approach, right? It can feel like so overwhelming, right? And like you can see it from white folks that are new to acknowledging that, anti-blackness exists that like it's just everywhere and it's like yes it is everywhere and and that means that you're not going you can't eat a whale overnight right um and that there is one joy and specialization right like we each have our superpowers we each have the places where we can lead and there are places where i lead and there's places where i am a worker bee and there's places where i just show up in solidarity because that's the most appropriate thing for me to do um, but I really am thinking about that, that Audrey Lorde quote about how, um, self-care is an act of self preservation and therefore is an act of political warfare. Um, and, and she was saying that as like a black queer woman, like surviving cancer. And I, and I think that that is something I'm really meditating on, right. Is that it's actually really crucial in this moment, more crucial than it's ever been, for folks who lead this work or have been leading this work for some time and and are kind of responsible for welcoming new folks in, um, for us to, to take care of ourselves a day at a time. And a part of that is cultivating joy. And also a part of that is like not trying to eat the whole whale, um, and recognizing, um, I think this is a weird reflection for the Steven universe conversation that Steven universe is also a conversation is also a story about intergenerational struggle, um, like literally the gems fight a war for a thousand years. And then 5,000 years after that, we start to get a resolution to the larger systems that made the war itself happen. Um, and, and I think that's a really apt metaphor for the fact that we aren't going to dismantle all the stuff overnight, but we're also not meant to. Um, and so, yeah, cultivate your joy day at a time, watch Hamilton, go outside, hug a baby, be as decent of a person as you can.
0: I love that. We should put that on a shirt. Go outside, hug a baby. I love it. Um, I've just been really enjoying talking to you both. And I appreciate how much I learn all the time, you know, building a space. So thank you so much for joining me. And this was a lot longer of an episode than normal. But I promise, 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 if you listen to both parts read all the great links, in the notes below, in the description, you will not have regretted. And if you know it out this way, I hope you did it. Um. So thank you all for joining another edition of Noah and my wonderful guests. I've put their Twitter handles. Uh, I, I don't know. You can't be following my people, though, if you want to be harassing them in the mentions. Like, I literally will block you. So anyway, go forth. Be a Build great shit. And we'll talk again soon. Peace.